When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. It's time for another brand new episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America, and turns out the money's fake, and the banks can't cover uh, what they owe to people as soon as people start losing faith in the market and they start calling in their bonds and their retirements and their whatever. You want to get your money out of whatever stocks you're invested in and whatever you know, <laughs> gold, silver, whatever you're doing to hedge your bets out there. Looks like the market's going to crash again. People have been forecasting it for months and maybe even years now. Sooner or later, I got a couple stock guys uh, I talked to at my bar. Uh, they came in a couple days ago and I said, all right, when's the market tanking? They said, well, <laughs> it started today. We got clobbered today. And I was like, oh, great, sooner than I expected. But I I know that train was going to arrive sooner or later. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to our fake, fiat, funny, monopoly money. <laughs> oh, boy. Hope you guys have been liking the show. Hope you guys like those video pods. A little bit shorter. I'm still trying to paint a picture and tell stories. Um, But today we're back to audio only. Just wanted to get my feet wet with some video shows. Hope you like those shows. Um, So let's get on with it. Uh, A while back, right around the time I released my Thomas Sowell is punk rock episode, uh, I spoke with my old buddy, Adam, the first man. You guys remember the punk anarchy and the state of the world episode I did with Adam. Uh, he and I jumped on and we're talking about some other stuff. And then that conversation turned into, hey, let's start recording and uh, come up with some more content. So we knocked out about another hour and a half, give or take. Uh, talked about some great stuff. Uh, we talked about. Uh, is the media controlling the government, or is the government that controls the media? You know, how how does the intricacies of the, those relationships really work? We talk about uh, people that have the entrepreneurial spirit and want to build their own empires versus people that just want cushy government jobs or cushy university jobs where they don't have to hack it in the private sector. They don't need to really know what it takes to make a business thrive uh, and (laughs) give people the ability to have jobs to go to 
Uh, we talk about Antonio Gramsci and Marxism and how the labor theory of value and the idea of surplus capital is uh, pretty hilarious uh, when you think about it. You Marxist uh, communists out there, I know you love that shit, but it is unproven uh, and vigorously tested. <laughs> So just accept it. Okay, let's just move on. No system's perfect because humans are imperfect creatures. But capitalism provides much, 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 much more for the average, ordinary, plebe, parole, peasant, serf, working class person than communism and socialism ever will. I'm sorry. If you don't like that sad reality, that's okay. But the sooner you accept it, the better your life will become. I promise. Because you'll be living in honesty. You'll be, you'll be intellect, you will be being intellectually honest. <laughs> and uh, it's a very freeing thing. The truth shall set you free, people. Uh, Adam and I also talk about... Uh, he talks about this reporter he really respects, Kim Iverson, that used to work for a ri the podcast Rising. Now some of the people have moved on to create a show called Breaking Points. Uh, Adam says it's very honest journalism, one of the last honest journalism uh, pages or podcasts or sites that you can go uh, check out. So go, go check that out. We talk about colleges uh, as Ponzi schemes with the student loans and the student loan forgiveness and the creating their own demand and uh, the idea of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy for some of you statist leftist types. Uh, we talk about Thomas Sowell, of course, and how the man is a legend, a genius, sharp, uh, still to this day in his 90s. Uh, and we talk about how he wrote a book every year from 1971 to the year 2020. What an accomplishment. The fact that he is not more spoken about and publicly talked about and respected on legacy mainstream corporate media is unbelievable and very telling for those of you that know what's going on. All right, let's go knock out this commercial. Uh, go check me out on soundcloud.com slash andrew 4 american 1984 for the music. Feel free to subscribe and uh, help out my little show. Uh, appreciate your support always, of course. Patreon.com slash andrew 4 america if you want to subscribe. Um, I'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I uh, just wanted to reintroduce Adam. So my friend Adam, the first man, is a punk rocker, bass player, uh, entrepreneur, DIYer, very intelligent, uh, very great perspective and insights, very knowledgeable. Uh, I, would, I would go so far as to say fair and balanced in his thinking. Uh, he understands concepts that are traditionally right and left concepts and topics and 
uh, you know, values, beliefs, I guess, whatever. Um, but uh, he is definitely able to see the big picture and to intelligently speak about it, and that's why I love having him on the show. Uh, again, great insights, great perspective. So here we go. Without further ado, here is our conversation between me and my old buddy, former bandmate, co-worker, punk rocker, and friend, Adam the First Man. Here we go. Did you see what the UN put out the other day? No, what do they got? It You're was, recording uh, all this, right? Yeah, I'm recording all this. Yeah, that's cool. what I'm saying. If we want I'm gonna if we're gonna keep going with some content, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's go. Okay, so here, let me find where the fuck did I put that at? God damn it. Oh, is this it? Hold on. Uh, High level Chinese Communist Party member. Nope, that's not it. Here we go. <laughs> this is ridiculous, dude. <laughs> the UN declares war on dangerous conspiracy theories. The world is not secretly manipulated by the global elite. This literally, and so, and then there's this thread of all these people going, that's a weird thing for the UN to say. The world is not secretly manipulated by a global elite. Like, why did you even have to say that? Like, yeah, like, who thought that? Why like, like even, you're almost revealing too much. It's almost like Streisand effect, you know? Well, it's like, why is it even <laughs> worthy? If there's no legitimacy to it at all. Okay, so there, there's an old saying, Drew, that says, the truth in any case needs no defense. Why would you even start to bring up a defense of something that is that demonstrably false if it is demonstrably false? And then furthermore, then what the fuck is the World Economic Forum doing when they meet every year? What are the Bilderbergers doing when they meet every year? What is the Trilateral Commission doing when they meet every year? They're just hanging out and like giving each other hand jobs. Like what, what are they actually doing? Secretly. And they're secretly, doing it allegedly, secretly. Uh, but they're, uh, my understanding is that they're Western grip hand jobs where the thumb can explode. <laughs> Um, like, think about this, right? So all of these groups, and by the way, none of these groups negate their own existence. So for anyone listening to this to be like, oh, that's just a bunch of blah, blah, blah. Well, these groups don't deny that they exist. So you should not deny they exist either. So if these groups acknowledge that they exist and they meet in secrecy and they're composed of multinational executives from various corporations, billionaires, royalty, this guy, that guy, the other guy, what are they actually talking about? Great question. Like, do you think they're getting together and being like, hey, guys, is it still cool to wear white after Labor Day or 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 do we need to move on from that? Or, hey, what do you guys think of uh, what do you guys think Kanye is going to do on his next album? Like, what are they talking about if they're not planning out actual global plans for things? I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to bring up Alex Jones on this, but I mean, I, I played the clip on my show where he met that Gergen guy. That that flat out said, I like the people that go to Bohemian Grove, and uh, if you go in there, uh, you you go there based on uh, having understandings with people, and if if you violate those understandings, then uh, I disrespect you for that. And you know, Alex Jones told him he was like, "Oh yeah, I snuck in there back in whatever year it was." And uh, it's been on national news, national TV. And this guy goes, "I disrespect you for that," and he starts like revealing all the shit about the people that go there, dude, it's like, 
you know, it, it's, it's very scary to watch how the government and the media have, are, are clearly, clearly on the same team and are operating under the same playbook. It's so let me, ridiculous. Let me ask you a question then, because Michael Malice said something that, I, that really got me thinking, because his whole thing is he thinks the media is the dog that waves the tail, the tail being the government. So he thinks it's actually the media that has full stop control or whatever. And when they wag the tail, it's the government getting wagged or whatever. Some people th- say the opposite. But if you think, if you were to ask yourself, where, where, where do you think the, the manipulation and the agenda really starts? I don't think it's that un- unreasonable to think that it actually starts with the media. And the reason why I'm starting to think that more and more and more is to your point, like, look at what are they doing? Look at what they're doing to anyone who's challenging official narratives. And if you didn't need to have a stranglehold on the media and the information that comes out via those channels, like, then why does it matter if someone goes on the news and has a differing opinion from you? Like, what difference does it make? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I think you you actually said it in our last conversation. You said, you know, if I can, if I know where you stand on one issue and by knowing where you stand on that issue, it automatically makes me know how you stand on these other issues. That is a clear real time example of the success and effectiveness of media manipulation, brainwashing and propaganda. 100%. It's it's the evidence. It is the the proof. And the proof and the, and the easiest two correlations on that, like, what do, what does the Second Amendment and school choice have anything to do with each other? Like your right to own or not own a gun, and then your right to either have to have your kids go to a school in your district or allowing your kids to go to any school of your choice, and then they get the funding for that student to go whatever school. How do those two issues have anything to do with each other? Yep. They don't. Zero. So, so the idea that like if you're on one side of that, and I can predictly, I can correctly predict what the other side is is just unbelievable. And I think I said this in your last, uh, in our last conversation, Drew, but, you know, we, we oftentimes revere countries like, you know, Denmark and Sweden and Norway for all the things that they do. Well, Sweden has school choice and they're considered to be a forward thinking progressive country. So then why in the United States do we see school choice as being something that sits on the right side of the perspective? Like, isn't allowing a child to go to whatever school their parents see most fit and not doom them to going to a terrible school because they live in a bad neighborhood? Isn't that kind of a progressive thing? Like to me, that seems like kind of forward thinking. But then when you realize, especially in the state of California, the most powerful lobby in the entire state is the teachers union. Hmm. That makes sense. Um, so, and I think it's, I think it's becoming very, very apparent that teachers unions, at least, you know, and, and I can speak to my state. I don't really think they have anyone but their own interests in mind. I don't really think it has anything to do with protecting students. I think it has to do with, get that cushy government job, make sure you get, you know, make sure that you get, uh, what is it, tenure and make sure that it's next to impossible for you to get fired so you can basically skate by for the rest of your life. You never have to worry about getting a job in the private sector. You never really have to worry about your ass being on the line. And when you retire, you know, you're good to go with with your benefits and you're this and you're that and the other. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of corruption. I think there's a lot of people that are uh, 100% in in it for themselves 
the reason why they got into politics in the first place was to get a little bit of power so that they can make moves uh, that would benefit their business and personal life. Um, I just released my Thomas Soul episode. Um, Love that man so much. Did you listen to it? No, I haven't. I I, I will absolutely. But he's yeah. my dollar. He's he's the most profound economist of the last century. Oh yeah, dude, you should go listen to it. I, I'm many, very proud of that work. It's one how, of my best how shows. Books, how many books has he published now? Fourteen. Forty-five. Four, he, Forty. 45 books. I just did a whole show on it. So from the years 1971 to the year 2020, he released on average, there was, there was a, there was a gap of five years between two, but uh, there was a gap of five years where he didn't put out a book, but between 1971 and 2020 on average, he released one book every single year in that span of time. Sometimes he's released two books, uh, there's like three or four years where he released two books in the same year. And that makes up the average for the five-year gap that he took that. But regardless, the fact that I'm even bringing up those specifics <laughs> completely undercuts the fact that this fucking legend wrote a book every year from 1971 to 2020. He was the most quoted black economist ever between 1971 and 1990, if I remember my research correctly. He should be the most legend, period. Agreed. I don't know. I I can't think of a single instance where he has predicted something. There's been a couple of times where he hasn't maybe hit the bullseye perfectly, but he's never swung and missed. Well, and we're all human. We're not going to be 100% right about everything all the time, but some of us. He is just, he's one of the most well-researched, anyone that ever criticizes him, the thing that they always speak to the positive about is the depth and breadth of his research. And you can't take the work away from him. You can't, you can't And the crazy it. thing to think about the guy is that I think he just had, I'm looking this up right now because I'm not going to pretend like I know. Yeah, go, so, go, so, no, so go to his Wikipedia. He has one of the longest which Wikipedia pages I've ever seen in my life. And when no, you I'm look not, at his I'm, bibliography, it's I'm all there. His, I'm on his Wikipedia right now. So he just celebrated his birthday on June 30th. So just over, a little over a month ago. Was it the 87, dude, 88? He's, uh, he's old. June though. 30th, 1930. The dude is 92. Okay? 92 now, shit. He speaks more <laughs> eloquently at 92 than either of us do at any point in our lives. 100%. He's 92 years old and still like he's, his brain is razor sharp, razor mm-hmm. sharp. Yep. Yep. So I, so I actually, in that episode, I, I, I run down uh, his entire bibliography. I just read it fast speed and I stopped on the important books. So I stopped on conflict divisions. I stopped on a vision of the anointed. I stopped on basic uh, economics, a citizen's guide to the economy. Uh, and then I stopped on, I said, people should read knowledge and decisions by him too. Those are the four big ones in my opinion, out of his 45 fucking books, the guy's written in his lifetime. And then I go on to say, so that episode, bro, it's called, I, I, I titled it Thomas Soul is punk rock. Because he is. The guy's fucking punk rock, dude. <laughs> I mean, he's certainly not afraid to stand in a scance of the orthodoxy. He's certainly not a, uh, uh, afraid to put himself out there and say what he believes to be true. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and just the fact that, like, the dude at minimum, like, he gets on base every time he swings. I just, like, the fact that Absolutely. 
the fact that the the mainstream establishment media machine has been able to ignore his body of work for that long just blows my mind. And speaking of, you know, since we're on, you know, the discussion of, of economics and everything else. Really quick, I'm glad you said that because that's why I did the episode is because he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Continue. Um, I don't know if you saw, I believe this actually just passed today, but um, you want to talk about a group of people. I, I didn't know it was possible to be equally as narcissistic as it is. I don't, I didn't know it was possible to be equally as narcissistic as you are ignorant to this magnitude. <laughs> but the DNC, think about this, the DNC to fight inflation, the anti-inflation act, uh, we're going to print, we're going to print $700 billion. Oh, bro. And immediately, and immediately <laughs> start spending that on things to fight inflation. It's almost like they're laughing in our faces at this point. Oh, dude. I've said, I, I completely agree. It's like, they're, it's like, they're, they're like, what are you going to do? It's like, it's like someone coming up to you and pushing you like, what's up? Hit me. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And we're just fucking getting pushed. Just getting pushed and pushed and pushed. Nobody's got the balls to fucking swing back. It's weird. And then it's I think weird. what they do is after they do stuff like this, as soon as people like you and I start talking and we start asking questions and we're like, okay, mm -hmm. what's really going on? Because obviously if you print mm -hmm. more money out of thin air, that's not backed by anything of value. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you put that money into circulation and you expedite the rate at which currency is spent. All you're going to do is create more inflation. Like you don't need to be a rocket surgeon to figure that one out. Mm -hmm. So I think as soon as people like us and everyone else starts to be like, Hey, wait, what's going on? I think they just go to like Pete Davidson and they're like, okay, Pete, uh, we need you to hook up with a, a super, another super famous star so we can make, put you in the headlines or Hey, Kanye, we need you to say something incredibly crazy so we can start. Yeah. So we can take attention hundred percent, really my friend. That's I'm telling you, <laughs> you, you I, I, I try to actually, you know what? If, um, if, uh, God, who the fuck is it that said this? Um, well, anyway, oh, uh, great deception. Matt actually did. Some, a couple of his first episodes were on monarch mind control with regard to celebrities and the CIA control and these nut job idiots. And that reminds me of, you know, if, if I had to look at a CIA psyop with regard to celebrities right now, Pete Davidson and the Kim Kardashian thing is just screaming at me, at me for sure, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering like when that relationship goes south is like what is it going to be like Billie Eilish next? Like where where does Pete go from here? Because they got yeah, she's in there. She's in that club. There's a lot of those. They they call them the sick. Like, uh, do you know about those conspiracy theories? Like people believe there's a group of people that think that a lot of the Hollywood elite are like deep into Satan worship and the occult and all that shit. So I've I've kind of teetered on the periphery of some of that stuff i don't get too into it because i i find most of it to be pretty kooky but i will say this it is this pretty is kooky this is something that is absolutely historically accurate you feel free to look this up if you don't believe me um andrew do you know who antonio gramsci is yeah oh i just got done talking to somebody about gramsci the other day oh yeah so, so just there's a enlighten reason, my listeners yeah get it get it dude. There, there's Go. a reason why people sneak massive ridiculous theories through doors that get left open because this door I'm was so left glad open. you brought him up. Yeah, this door was 100% left open by Antonio Gramsci. So for those of you guys that don't understand like 
the contentious back and forth about, you know, like CRT, for example, I know that that's not really like the hot button issue at the moment, but it certainly was for a long time. And the unfortunate thing is that most people who are in favor of that, they don't really understand its origins. They think that they're just being encouraged to tell honest history and not kind of brush a lot of the nasty things that the United States has done under the rug. And if that were the sole intent of it, I'd be like, yeah, hundred percent. I think everybody should know about the Tulsa massacre and everybody should know about redlining and everybody should know about the war on drugs. And by the way, everyone should know that LBJ was a giant racist and actually tried to destroy communities of color through his great society act. So we, <laughs> we should tag that one on there too. Cause that guy was a total piece of shit. Um, but if you go back, the original birthplace of all critical theory starts in the Frankfurt University in the 1920s. And it started with dudes like Antonio Gramsci. So check this out. I believe it was in like 1918 or 1919. Antonio Gramsci goes to the Soviet Union because he is the head of the Communist Party in Italy at the time. And he wants to see Marx's amazing ideas in all of their glory. And then he goes to the Soviet Union and he quickly realizes, oh my God, this was a complete and total utter failure. <laughs> and instead of doing the right thing and getting his shit together and being like, you know what? I should probably take a page out of Thomas Sowell's book and divorce my narcissistic tendencies to these ideas that have ap absolutely no intellectual merit. He, doubled it, he doubles down on crazy. And then he says, then he comes up with a theory that says, Controlling the means of production alone is not enough because workers are never going to make good proxy pawns in changing the world in the revolution as I see it. Because at some point, workers are going to put their faces down. They're going to work hard. It might not happen in a single generation, but within a couple generations of hard work, honesty, you know, whatever, people are going to start acquiring some material wealth and then they're going to become complacent in the amount of material wealth that they've created. So controlling workers is not going to be enough to get the revolution we, we need. We need to control everything. We need cultural hegemony. We need to control the media. We need to control television. We need to control the, the educational uh, uh, institutions. We need to get in and infiltrate families. So when Gramsci, left, when Gramsci left the, the, the Soviet Union and went to the Frankfurt University in the 1920s, He's, he, he started to push this idea of cultural hegemony. And I think that if you were to take that from, hey, there's a bunch of Satan worshipers in Hollywood or whatever, um, the people that want world domination through political control via government and oppressive governments or whatever, they actively need to control things like Hollywood. They actively need to control the educational institutions. And Gramsci also came to the conclusion that uh, intellectual type people would be much, much, much better um, proxies to kind of get the revolution that they wanted, which leads me to believe that this is the reason why it's so easy to get student loans. And this is the reason that pe certain people on the left are pushing so hard for student loan forgiveness so that they can keep, they got their little indoctrination factories just running and running and running and running and running. Like, You'll never hear anyone talk about trade school forgiveness because guess what? Anyone that went to a trade school actually learned a skill of value. And all of those people are too busy working and producing things of value and making society better to compare, to care about some abstract theory by a dude who's been dead for almost a hundred years, 
who doubled down on crazy after he saw the failures of Marxism when he, when he visited Russia. Oh boy. I'm so glad you brought the, all this up because <laughs> I got to have a field day with this right now. Um, first of all, my stepbrother makes me look like a little bitch. This kid went and became an electrician and has worked his way up to foreman of a huge company. Now he is killing it. And whoever is in charge of the marketing campaign that got you, me, everyone of our generation to believe that a four-year go into debt to get there if you have to college education was the solitary sole way of being anything in this life. That motherfucker is the best PR marketing person in the history of humanity because people still 40, 50 years later have that bullshit stuck in their brains and it ain't coming out anytime soon. Well, and then, and then here's the other thing that you have to think about, about why this is such a Ponzi scheme, right? So let's say that I'm hypothetically a, I don't know, a liberal arts major, or I'm studying, you know, some abstract, you know, theory that doesn't necessarily produce a bunch of value within the private sector. But you know, maybe there is some value to society by studying, you know, this, and I'm not, and I'm not, by the way, if you have a liberal arts degree, I'm not shitting on you right now. I'm just saying it happens to be something that doesn't necessarily translate to a lot of things other than teaching, right? Dude, you know, what? I got my BA in sociology. I, I, I I, I, I was the dumbass that joined the military to get a fucking college degree. And then when I went to college, I got a degree in sociology. So like, I'm yeah, the I dumbass. Studied, and, I, and I, I, I owned it. I've talked about it for years. You knew that about yeah, it. I studied history. So I'm in the same boat yeah, as you are. Same boat. Same boat. Here's That's what I'm saying. The PR, whoever the PR guy that got us to believe that shit, I'm hiring him for our businesses. Let's get that guy or gal. So think about this, right? Let's say on average, there's stu 30 students per professor in a classroom. It's actually much greater than that in most colleges, but we'll say for the sake of this conversation, it's 30 people per, per professor. Well, unless you have 30 times exponential college or population growth, there's not gonna be, because most of those students want to be that professor when they finish. Well, guess what? All 30 of those students, they finish up, they get their degree or whatever, they're ready to enter the, the, the workforce. And that professor is still there. Cause he's going to stay there until, you know, he's ready to retire or dies or whatever. So if you don't have 30 times exponential population growth, what do all of those people do with that degree to go get a job? Well, then a lot of them are going to get jobs that have nothing to do with their degree, which is like what you did, what I did. Um, yep. But then, but, but here's why college has gotten so unbelievably expensive over the last 20 years is that their Ponzi scheme was starting to get exposed and they had to create success stories for a lot of these kids that were coming out of these elite colleges. So they just started stacking administrative positions and they're stacking administrative positions infinitely faster than they're yep. stacking, you know, uh, teaching positions and they're stacking administrative positions exponentially at a higher rate than the population of their colleges are growing. And that is the main reason why college or not maybe the main reason but it's certainly one of the main reasons why college is getting so expensive because they have to make the money back on all of the salaries that they're paying these people and this is why i think the conversation around student debt forgiveness is complete and total bullshit 
has nothing to do with people like me or maybe people like you who paid our own way through school or whatever. I don't care about myself. I don't need anything from the government. Why I think it's bullshit, why I think it's bullshit is what about all the people who made the adult decision to not go to college because they couldn't afford it? You have so many people that are like, you know what? I don't have the financial means to go to college, so I'm not going to go. And now they are basically... I don't want to say permanently, but they're kind of in a quasi permanent state where they have a lower earning potential or maybe not in today's economy, but certainly 10 years ago, they got in a, in a, in a space where they have a lower earning potential than their colleagues who have degrees. Why do the people with degrees get bailed out when they have a higher earning potential? Like if you're going to bail out the people that have degrees, whatever that average amount of money is, you have to give that money to everyone who didn't go to college too. Cause if not, you're just privileging people who A, were in a position to even like think that they could go to college. And you're actually privileging people who made really poor financial decisions to go into massive amounts of debt. And let's be real, man. Like you didn't go to San Diego State, but you were there with us. Like really, like you're going to go party your ass off for four years and like become an adult and like learn how to basically read a textbook through one bloodshot hungover eye or whatever. And you want that four years of amazing life experience paid for by the government because you studied something that has no value. And now all of a sudden it's the world's faults. hundred percent. So I would, I would say this, no, if, you want, if you, if we want to explore debt forgiveness, sure. But you also have to give money to everyone who didn't go to college in that same era. And then you have to go to the financial institutions and be like, you need to make education affordable to the tune of this percent figure your shit out or we're cutting all your funding yeah i have this um <laughs> i have this romantic belief that the reason why the whole debt forgiveness thing came up is because somebody feels like shit that they preyed upon so many people with the for-profit education and they're just trying to get anybody that was capable that could get a government loan to go to for you know online school or any kind of school, it doesn't matter what it was. And uh, I know that that's not real. That's very idealistic, but that's what it feels like to me from the outside a little bit. And I kind of take a little bit of comfort in that. <laughs> they feel bad for being pieces of shit. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, or maybe they got to keep the propaganda factories funded for longer because if they don't do some type of debt forgiveness or whatever, people, there's no way people are going to keep at it, you know? And to your point, you know, if, if anyone's listening to this right now, and if you have a kid that's, you know, 16, 17, 18, and they're not exactly sure what they want to do with their life, uh, make them become an electrician. 100%. I'm telling you, I, I own multiple brick and mortar uh, businesses throughout, you know, the state of California or whatever. I can never, ever, ever find a competent electrician when I need one. Uh, when I finally can find one, you know, a day, two, three days later, it's usually like 100, 150 bucks just for them to show up. And then it's like somewhere between 100 and $200 an hour just for them to work. Dude, I have a great story about this. So I get like, just to get someone to come out and do a small job, it's three, four, five, six, seven hundred, a thousand dollars sometimes. And then, so I've kind of made friends with, you know, some people that are in the construction, whatever. And I know electricians that work, you know, between 28 and 33 hours a week that make 110, 140, 150, $170,000 a year, literally for, for working 30, 35 hours a week. Yep. And Just because they're in a niche that nobody else wants to do it. And they, and they, and they have the skills, like you said. So check this out. So when I first moved back to Minneapolis for a short period of time, I got a job bartending at the airport and I worked at this little 
it, it was called Skull, like Skull Vikings were number one. It was called Skull Bar. Uh, and it was out in the very end of the A concourse. And my shift, bro, like <laughs> 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And I had to take a, I had to take the light rail into the airport to get through security. So I had to like park. It was like a half hour ordeal to even get into where I work. So obviously this was temporary for me. I wasn't doing this shit for that long, but I'm glad I did. And here's why, because way out at the end of the A concourse was, were whatever the flights to Williston, North Dakota, where all of these oil workers consistently traveled to and from everywhere else in the country to go fracking in the fracking fields up there. And one of the guys one day, God, I'm glad you brought this up. This is such a great story. I've, I've always thought about one, one day this guy comes and sits down at the bar and this is you, you will, you know, this better than anybody being a bartender and working in the service industry, the people that you meet, you, you have access to the entire world and you don't even know it. And if you're a bartender out there and you don't, understand that fact you're leaving so much money and opportunity on the table you're only hurting yourself okay so brief aside I, let me continue um one day guy sits at my bar we start shooting the shit he says yeah i kind of feel bad and i say why is that he says well i'm i'm heading out to williston north dakota i'm about to fire a shitload of people i'm like why is that he said because they're pulling all the they're, we're not going to frack out there anymore this was like, I don't know, six years ago and uh, five years ago. And I was like, oh, are you like uh, the main guy or whatever? He was like, yeah, I'm like, I own the fucking blah, 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 oil company. And I'm about to send all these guys home. And I was just like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> so we get to talking. And uh, during the course of this conversation, he starts bringing up how difficult it was to get trade workers out there to the oil fields to get certain jobs done. He said that it was so difficult to find American tradespeople, electricians, plumbers, whatever, carpenters, whatever, whatever they needed, that they had to contract Canadian companies to come down across the border from Canada because clearly they're close to Canada. He couldn't find anybody in the, in the region, in that area of North Dakota. They had to contract companies from Canada to come and do that work in the United States. And Fact, truth. Can you believe that shit? That is bananas to me. And it's probably, they're probably really well-paying jobs too. That's, I mean, $100,000 a year, easy, easy. Yeah. It's a six-figure job. Dude. Honestly, I blew my it, mind, blew my mind. I think it just speaks to how soft we have become as a society. Our material wealth, our comfort, our access to anything we want, whenever we want, our, you know, I can Amazon this. The tyranny of convenience. Yep. Yeah, our, 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 our lifestyle and the, just the sheer amount of luxury and convenience and, and ease we have in day to day. Like we have become so soft as that, and to your point, you know, I actually had to pull a shift last night at one of the places I work at because, you know, my bartender, who's an awesome dude, he just randomly got food poisoning and couldn't come to work. And I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll step in. And I don't really get to bartend that much these days. 
but I had more fun last night tending bar for six hours than I've had in a ridiculously long time. Cause to your point, you yeah, get to shoot shit with people. You get to find out, you know, what people are, are doing at any given point in time. You There's get to so learn much about, opportunity. There's, there's so, so much. much opportunity to learn perspective. And the other nice thing too, is if you learn how to play the cause and effect game, as opposed to the right and wrong game, basically meaning like, Hey, there's an outcome that I'm looking to get to with the exception of doing anything that I find immoral. Like I'm going to stay true to like my moral compass, but I just need to get to the outcome. Like the path shouldn't really matter. Like I, I, I shouldn't get caught up in this, this sphere of like, Oh, is that, it was what that person doing right. Or is what that person's doing wrong. Just are they effective at what they're looking to do? And if you can learn how to effectively navigate conversations, how you can learn to effectively go out of your way to make someone's day better, find the way to give them the service. And some people, you know, services, you know, offering the correct beer, like you just said, you love hazy IPA or whatever. For some people, it's like getting the perfect cocktail at the perfect time. Sometimes people just need to be heard and they just want someone to talk to. They don't even give a shit. 100%. They just, they just want that interaction. But if you learn how to navigate that landscape, I don't know where I would be in life if I didn't spend, you know, well over 10 years behind the stick, just talking to people. Like, it's almost like you learn how to become uh, a sociologist, a psychiatrist and a therapist all at once. 100%. And I think that's why I still do it. Like you said, and you know, it's in your blood. Um, I've attempted many times to do other things, uh, not successful. And yeah, I, I mean, you're right. You're, it's just, I love well, it. I, I don't, and, and I that's don't, the thing. It, it, the, 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 what it boils down to is that it's hard to walk away from something that you love to do. Yeah. There it is. Well, I, also think, I also think it's like, what is wrong with going out of your way to try to make someone happy? Like, when did we start looking down on serving people? in this country. It's weird. I, I, I've noticed this with the, this younger generation of, of servers and bartenders and everything else. They got this really like negative attitude about being in service and being of the service of other people. And they feel like they're, they're second-class citizens to a certain degree. And, and I, I don't, I don't really follow her anymore, but there was a gal that I used to follow on social media and she, she's like maybe mid twenties or maybe late twenties or whatever. And just perpetually bitching about, how oppressive the service industry is and like you know you know like you know someone called me a workhorse at at my job the other day and i just found that so offensive and man like we used to work together drew like i'm pretty like i'm nine times out of ten i'm the workhorse behind any bar i step behind and when people be like oh that's a workhorse right there i took so much pride in people referring to me as that because like oh yeah like here to get my hands dirty and the fact that like we just we've come to a point in, in our culture and our society where we feel like there's something demeaning about serving other people. I think being in service of another human is like the best thing you could do with your life. And there's so many different ways you can serve people. Like we happen to do it through booze. Cause let's be real. We like to make cocktails and you know, we like to get people drunk and have a good time, but like there's so many ways you can serve people. And I feel like that's like one of the best things you could do with your life. You know, like my mom's a nurse. Oh yeah. That, that's being in service of other people. And I just think it's really, really sad that we've kind of lost our focus on what's important and what's not important and like you know i live in the bay area and you know everything's like you know this tech startup and that tech startup and you know this financial institution and that and you have all these people that that work 
in these fields that feel like they're so, you know, like morally superior to other people because they have a fancy degree and everything else. That's and I'm like, what okay. I'm like, so you created an algorithm so people can take pictures of their dicks to then have them disappear. And like, <laughs> and, and you happen to make a lot of money because you created that algorithm. What did you really do for society? Uh, yeah. hundred percent. It, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> oh man. It's funny that you say that. Like, um, this is kind of off topic, but you just you just got me thinking about this. Um, I was watching World Series of Poker, World Poker Tour the other day. I love, I love that shit. Yeah, man. I, God, I miss playing cards. I used to play cards all the time. But I like watching it just to see the characters they got on there now. And I like to watch their game, too, to see if they're actually good or if it's just all show. But there's this guy on there. And I saw him pick up like three, four hands back to back. And then the the commentators guys uh, guys jumped on and they were like, this is so-and-so. I forget his name, but he's the founder of uh, DoorDash. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you're at the high stakes table sitting next to Daniel Negreanu and fucking Phil Ivey right now. How much money are you making off DoorDash? How much money are you making off of restaurants, bro? Like, I, I know it's kind of off topic, but, uh, you know, there is something to be said for the work ethic and the desire to be of service to your fellow ma- man, woman, community member, whatever, but a desire to be a positive part of your community. And I, I almost feel like it's, it's, an outcome of maybe the propaganda that these kids feel so affluent and, and entitled that, Oh, I don't do that kind of work. I don't do that level of work. That's beneath me somehow. And I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's what it feels like, you know? Oh, it it 100% feels like that. And uh, I think it comes back to something that we spoke about in our last conversation um, the notion of surplus capital, right? And it's like this idea that you work in a business and at the end of the day, you get paid X amount, you know, the cost of goods are this, the fixed costs are that, the variable costs are that. And at the very end of the day, there's, there's surplus capital. There's basically, it's another word for profit. And because there's profit, you are clearly being taken advantage of because you produced more than what you got paid. And a lot of young people, they get sold this idea, you know, in in college or, you know, from whatever, whatever angle they get it from. And it's easy to get sucked into believing that there's validity to that idea. But it's, it's one of those things where it's like you read the first chapter, but you didn't read chapters 10 through 15. And the main reason why the notion of surplus capital is complete and total bullshit is a there's, there's value in intellectual property. Right. And at the end of the day, some people are going to come up with really amazing ideas and some people are not. Uh, And you have to be able to. So so basically where I'm going with this is if someone would not have come up with the amazing idea to, I don't know, let's say, compete directly with the taxi industry and start companies like Uber and Lyft, Mm -hmm. um, there would be no jobs for Uber and Lyft drivers. If someone would not have come up with the idea to. I don't know, uh, make American single malt whiskey to compete with scotch here in the United States, there would be no jobs for those distillers, those, sale, those salespeople, 
those um, those brand ambassadors, those all of that, right? So a I love where you're going with this. Yep. First and foremost, there's value in intellectual property, and and the easiest way, the easiest way for someone to kind of latch onto that idea, think about your favorite band, like they're making money off of a song that was original to them. Think of your favorite punk band. All mm-hmm. of those bands are basically mostly making money off of intellectual property, their mm-hmm. music, their live performances, the way they put their merch together, the way they personify themselves on stage, the atmosphere they create, all of that value is created by intellectual property. So there's intellectual mm-hmm. property, that's a big one. Uh, B, here's another thing that people that, that buy into the, no, the, the myth of surplus capital, um, you're not taking any risk as an employee. Like, unless you work for a place that's hypothetically going to go bankrupt or go out of business, you know exactly, you sign up to make X amount of money and you say, okay, I'm going to get paid X amount for X for Y amount of my time. And you'll always make that or, or some derivative of that. Um, No employee ever goes to work to lose money. And I've had numerous times, you know, the very first thing I tried to do when I came up to the Bay area you know, my partner and I got burned for like 30 something G in like four months. And that was just us trying to get an idea off the ground. Boom, four months, 30 grand, gone. Bye-bye, not coming back. Uh, there were numerous times during the COVID regime lockdowns and everything else where we were hemorrhaging money, hemorrhaging money, right? So you don't take any risk as an employee where I do feel like if you're willing to take a risk and you're willing to take a gamble, then yeah, there, there should be maybe a bigger piece of the pie for you at the end of the day. But here's the, here's the, uh, another one that I think is every bit as important as the intellectual property piece. I think the risk piece is important, but this is the, the big one. Okay. So anyone that starts a business, the last, you know, our flagship business that my partner and I opened, um, we worked on this project, like just, we conceptually worked on it for like two, two and a half years, just like, refining what we wanted the place to look like, how we wanted it to feel, like what kind of music we were going to play, what kind of like, what kind of hospitality we want to provide. So like two, two and a half years of just conceptualizing, right? Probably like a year and a half of building the place. And then another two and a half years of paying off loans and investors and everything else, right? So that's six and a half years, zero money, didn't make a penny. And then all of a sudden, when the business becomes profitable, that is my time to start getting paid on all of the work that I've done. Absolutely. So, so, but, 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 but because there's profit, I'm automatically, um, uh, I'm automatically uh, subject. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, because there's profit doesn't mean that I'm automatically taking advantage of people that work for me. Because, like I said, we were the ones that put in all, like the the business owner puts in all the intellectual property. They're the one that takes all the risk and they're the one that had to spend, you know, one year, two years, six years, 10 years, kind of refining their idea to get their business off the ground. And I just think that so many young people now have just been indoctrinated to believe that if you work at a business that turns a profit, you're clearly being taken advantage of because you produced more than the work that you did. And that's why the Marx's notion of surplus capital, those are three really good reasons why it's just a complete and total bullshit idea. And, yep. and, and here's one thing before I turn it over to you, because I, I know you're going to have some commentary to add to this. <laughs> I, mentored, I have mentored so many young people who, you know, they'll start working with me 
And, you know, I'll be like, hey, you know, when, when I do job interviews, I always ask yourself like, hey, what do you want to do in two years? What do you want to do in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? How does this job act in service of you getting to the next step in your life? Because by the way, if I'm not going to be a positive in your growth path, tell the mentor attitude you have. That's awesome. We should not engage in this work relationship because I want to make sure that this is getting to you to whatever the next thing in your life is going to be. And I talked to so many kids that are like, oh, I want to own my own spot one day. And I'm like, rad, love that. What can I, how can I help you? What can I teach you about? And then, you know, we'll start talking about, you know, profit and loss statements, you know, the efficiency of making sure that you're paying attention to X, you're doing Y, you're doing Z. Um, mm-hmm. And then these kids will see me like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I heard something happened. What happened? I was like, oh yeah, you know, a water main burst. So I had to get out of bed at three in the morning and I had to go down there and I had to meet the city and get the entire water on our property shut off. And then I had to sit there until I could get a plumber come out and blah, blah, blah. And they're just like, so do you ever get to clock out? And I'm like, no. I mean, like, (laughs) yeah, there are days I get to clock out, but if one of our venues gets broken into, or if something breaks, or if there's a fire or whatever, you're basically on call 24 seven. And I have so many people that are like, you know what, two years ago, when I first started working here, I thought that I wanted to own my own business. But after seeing what your life is like for the last two years, I don't want to do this. Interesting. And the, and the reality is entrepreneurial, that lifestyle, it's not for everybody. It really isn't. Some people are just better off getting a stable job where they know they're going to make whatever amount of money for whatever amount of their time. And then they can just plan a life around a reliable income source. Because when you play the entrepreneur business owner game, you're on a roller coaster 24 seven. And some days are a lot better than others. And some people I just don't feel are cut out for the high highs and the low lows. It's not for everybody. Yeah, that is a hundred percent true. So I have a lot. I, uh, I actually had to take some notes on that because I have a lot of thoughts on everything you just said. First thing, uh, Josh Gullick, old friend, if you are out there listening to this, I got this from you. The first axiom of finance. Risk requires compensation. That's my first point. (laughs) Completely agree with you. Uh, Second of all, uh, in my Chomsky episode, um, I talked quite a bit about um, the job contract and about choosing to sell your labor for a wage temporarily and how he sees it as exploitation and I see it as a means to an end that was a freely chosen job contract. Nobody forced you into that deal. Nobody made you sign that paperwork by gunpoint. Right. So, and I made the argument in that episode, I was like, Hey, if anyone wants to get Chomsky on my show, I'll ask him to his face. What is your problem with the job contract? You know what I mean? Like, what is what is your problem with libertarianism? He makes the argument later in this interview that I covered on one of my episodes where he says, um, "The uh, the uh, I listened to uh, Ludwig von Mises and uh, my first time listening to a lecture by him, he said that uh, the main goal of libertarianism is to be the master of slaves. And I was like, that is the most ridiculous take I've ever heard, especially disconcerting coming disconcerting coming from a guy as who is one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, Noam Chomsky. 
So, and then I, it, that, that, um, you know, listening to him say that and processing it the way I did led me to this point where I was like, you know, maybe we're all idiot savants. Maybe there are certain things about us that we are absolutely brilliant on and should be listened to as an authority on. But then there's other stuff maybe we're not up to par with. And just because of our level of status on another topic, somebody wants to listen to what your opinion is on something else. You might not be the expert in that field that you are on the other thing. So that's another thing I wanted to say. Yeah, um, in the, in, the, in the, the, the issue I take with saying that the goal of libertarianism is to create a scenario where there's you know, the master of slaves or whatever, well, libertarians as a general rule don't want to push their will on anyone. That's why you're a libertarian. You don't. The non-aggression principle. That's, That's right. Nobody so like, ever talks about it. Nobody ever yeah. fucking talks about it. So like, I think Ridiculous. that most of my ideas are relatively well thought out, but if you think my ideas are trash, like you don't have to. I don't know what that was. Oh, did you hear that? Yeah, that was my weird. That was my Bluetooth from my other computer thing going off. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll cut that out. <laughs> yeah, but so anyway, most, most libertarians I know, they don't want to exercise any of their will in your life. Um, so if, like I said, like if, if someone wants to say, Hey, Adam, I think your ideas are trash, then great. You can either tell me why you think my ideas are trash and we could talk or you just, exactly. don't, you don't have to listen to them. Whereas I would say, the opposite of what Chomsky said is true. Uh, when you're saying, hey, here's the playbook. This is the direction that society has to be steered in. And by the way, if you don't post the black square on your Instagram, you're a piece of shit. And if you don't post <laughs> the flag, the Ukrainian flag, you're a piece of shit. Like, isn't that the person that's trying to impose their will in a, on, on the rights and the freedoms of other people? I would say the opposite of that is true. I think if you're a statist, and you want the state to say, stand up, sit down, you know, mm -hmm. speak up, but don't speak up too much. And, and speech is violence, but silence is also violence. And do this and <laughs> do that, and then do that. And then, like, to me, that is the puppeteer that's, that's dangling the puppet. The libertarian that says, like, hey, I don't really care what you do with your time. Just don't infringe on what I do with my time. Like, that's antithetical to wanting to control people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's very telling that all the things that seem logical to a rational person person about what we should be doing are coincidentally somehow the exact things that the establishment and the mainstream media tries to demonize as conspiracy theory or white nationalism or you're an alex jones type conspiracy theorist and you should be fucking put to death and removed from this country forever just the venom that comes out of people. And, and, and that, you know, it's not just the left, the right does the same thing in their own way. You know, it, it's just, nobody wants to find calm or reason or bring it back to center, rational thought. And, and I feel like most real libertarians, big, you know, um, most, most true libertarians don't, play that game they don't play the partisan they don't choose oh i'm a little bit conservative i'm a little bit this like everything is the principle everything is you know 
you should have, we should be solving all problems with more freedom for the individual. And I know that there's a line. I know that that, you know, you can't be a hundred percent libertarian on everything. I know that for obvious reasons, but when you look at it as a framework to view concepts through rather than an ideology or a belief or a political party, like it's not, that's not what it is. And it's made to be that. And that's how they keep it fringe third party out of the mainstream conversation. Well, and I also think the, the very nature of people and, you know, and I, I like to say that, you know, I, I don't like labels, so I don't necessarily consider myself a libertarian, nor do I consider myself uh, an anarchist, 100%. nor do I consider myself a progressive. Punk rocker. I'm a, my political party is punk rock. Do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So like, but, but I, but I see value in all of those things. And in, in, to be candid, like I don't, I have progressive values. I just think their ideas about how to get there are very, very kooky. But, but my point is, I actually agree with that. I actually yeah. agree with you on that. But my point's like, honestly, most libertarian people I know, and when I say libertarian, I mean libertarian with a small L, most mm-hmm. of those people have really progressive values. Like they don't want to see the big there guy is crossover. Yeah, yep. yeah, they don't want to see the big guy run away with all of the money at the end of the day. They don't want to see, you know, people get subjugated and everything else. They just believe that the easiest way to fix those problems is by creating as much freedom as, as possible. And I would right. say that I think one of the reasons why the libertarian movement doesn't have nearly as much uh, influence and control and, and uh, power in the political sphere is that we're so open to a creating space for other people that we're not actively trying to corral everyone together and get everyone on the same team. There is a disconnect. That's for sure. Cause like, I mean, the main things that, that every libertarian or at least, you know, like, like I say, libertarian minded people, libertarian with a small L, the, the, the things that we mostly have consensus on is that, you know, uh, American imperialism and regime change wars and us playing, you know, world police or whatever is bullshit. It's wasteful. Uh, we create more problems than we solve. And it is just such a boondoggle to feed American taxpayer money into the hands of corporations that don't give two shits other than their bottom line. So we're pretty unanimously against wars, especially regime, regime change wars and proxy wars to, to have you know, American influence in other parts of the country. So we're pretty unanimous about that. We're pretty unanimous that no drug offender should be behind bars for using recreational drugs. Like, I'm sorry, but like, you know, I know that there's discussion right now of that, that NBA, uh, that WNBA player that's, you know, just got sentenced mm-hmm. to nine years in Russia, which I think yep. is completely total utter bullshit. I would like to see her home tomorrow. But when someone like Kamala Harris or someone like Joe Biden goes out and says, oh, you know, this is, this is unbelievable. And, you know, this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we can't have this. I'm like, Kamala Harris, how many people did you put behind bars in the state of California? <laughs> Like so Joe many Biden, people are talking about that. Yeah. Didn't you? Didn't you write the crime bill that said, you know, if we catch you with a piece of crack the size of my 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 pinky fingernail, you're going to go to jail for blah 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 blah. But then, oh by the way, you know, in 30 years when my son becomes a crackhead, I'm also going to go <laughs> in front of a camera and ask you to have compassion for his addiction and everything else. But I'll put as long as long as you're a political elite or you're someone of status in American society, you're an athlete, you're this, you're that. Oh yeah. We'll bend the rules for them. But if you're one of the lowly people, we don't give a shit how, how long we put you behind bars for. So I, th- I thought, I think there's great irony in that. So we're pretty uh, unanimously in favor of ending all wars, 
getting anyone who's behind bars on a drug charge out of jail and back to their families immediately. And we're pro-freedom and we're pro-free speech. That's basically the three things that we are fully united on. And then a lot of the other, like a lot of the other topics that come up, it's a really big tent with a lot of diversity of ideas in it. I know libertarians that are staunchly pro-life. I know libertarians that are staunchly pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Both of those camps exist within the party. Um, and neither camp is like actively fighting to homogenize the movement because at the end of the day, we feel like we have bigger fish to fry. Freedom, making sure people aren't in jail over bullshit, you know, like drugs and stuff, and making sure that we're not starting irresponsible wars like we did in Iraq, where, you know, somewhere between 500,000 and a million innocent civilians, not soldiers, innocent civilians were oh, slaughtered yeah. as a byproduct 100%. of our presence. Like, I'm sorry. Like, and so, so for some, and it like, continues in other countries as we speak. Yeah. So for someone like Chomsky to say that, oh, this is the route to make sure that, you know, there's a master of the slaves. Wait, what? Like, yeah, it's I would, weird. He would really have to walk me through. I mean, I actually, that- I actually said real quick, I actually said that in that episode. I remember I was like, you know, how can you not see, like, you were so brilliant. Like how, <laughs> you know, how do you, in, in fact, furthermore, can you point me, find me the excerpt from the book that Mises wrote where he says that that's the goal of libertarianism, quote unquote. I'm like, dude, you know, and then, you know what, in that same interview, it was with Ezra Klein from New York times. So I got to give credit. Um, I actually, I'll just interject real fast. I yeah. disagree with Ezra Klein about a lot of things, but I do mm-hmm. appreciate his perspective, even though I don't think he's. Oh, I agree. He had a great I perspective wrong about a lot of things. I think he's right about a lot of things as well, but I really I agree his perspective. I don't think he's a bad actor. I think he's a good actor that I would disagree with. And he's the type of person that I would love to have a respectful conversation with. Cause I do think he's doing positive things for the culture war. I think so too. And I think that he, I think that he had a very thoughtful uh, interview with Chomsky and he did push him. He didn't just like let him, he didn't roll over on everything he said. He actually fired back with um, the questions about, you know, the job contract and stronger cases for why capitalism does or doesn't work. I'm just, I'm trying to pull it off the top of my head. I don't remember everything that I put in that episode, but um, another thing that came out of that episode, that's interesting that I actually made the case for was worker owned conglomerate companies like Mondragon in uh, I think it was Spain or Italy. And I think, I think we maybe had talked about that. I've been talking about it quite a bit because I, <laughs> dude, I repeatedly come uh, up against right-wingers, staunch conservatives that I'm like, you know, there are worker run unionized, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, you know, conglomerate companies operating successfully in the world. Yeah, they have their problems just like everybody else. But to make the argument that it's not possible, nor does it exist, is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's a lie on its face. And honestly, there's yep. some of the, there's some really successful food businesses, you know, where I live in the Bay Area that are, you know, either worker owned or they have some sort of co-op situation or they do yep. some sort of profit share or whatever. And um, I think that's the future. I think that's okay. the future, especially I, 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 of food. A hundred percent agree. Um, there's a there's a chain up here in the Bay Area called Zachary's Pizza, and I'm gonna give them a shout out real fast because they're uh, I think you know for the better part of twenty ish years or maybe you know somewhere right around that time they've been in ESOP, so an employee stock option basically scenario where mm-hmm. 
the longer you work there, you start to vest stock within the company. And then once you get to like X amount of time, your stock, you know, you, you max out or whatever. And then when you leave the, the moment that you end your contract with that company, they basically take a valuation of the company. And then however many shares you vested over that time, they buy you out over the course of X amount of years when you leave the company. So there's people that are go, that'll go work at Zachary's for, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever. And then they'll get checks four times a year for like good amounts of money, you know? And then a lot of the time people will like save that money to start their own business or they'll use that money to fund education or, you know, a trade. Or sometimes people are like, Hey, you know what? I did my 10 years. I'm going to go travel and I'm going to go clear my head for a couple of years. And it's just like a cool concept where people get to see the direct quantifiable um, returns on their efforts, but it always comes back to the same thing we talk about. It's voluntary, voluntary opt-in, voluntary opt-out. So no one's forcing you into anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's not a scenario where you can't get fired. Um, You know, people get fired from that company for breaching company policy. So they have good Mm -hmm. measures to have accountability in their business. So their best employee and their worst employee aren't sitting there in the same room and, you know, they have the same job security, but then they also pay people out on the back end. And then they, they have an an amazing product. Their pizza is unbelievably good and their culture is really good. And so to your point, like worker co-ops can absolutely work. And I, I mm-hmm. fundamentally think that profit sharing co-ops, especially in the small business space, that's going to be the future. Because I think as it becomes harder to find qualified laborers in some of these fields that struggle, everyone's going to gravitate to the place where they know they're going to get a little bit more icing on the cake. You know, it's funny about that. You know, what that sounds like to me, moral capitalism. And it almost makes me think that the people that came up with those ideas did so from a starting point of expecting every able-bodied citizen to be moral and to act in a moral way and to abide by your agreements and contracts with other people. And And it's ridiculous to think that there needs to be this CEO top-down hierarchy. I get all that. And it's, it's become so out of control too, that as soon as, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I hope it's only a matter of time. I, I, I ideally think that we are all going to, the average person is going to wake up sooner or later and be like, wow, this is bullshit. We're not doing this anymore. Let's, let's go in a different direction, you know, but I don't know if that's going to happen because of the propaganda, but, you and I sitting here having this conversation about the crossover between capitalism and socialist ideas and all this stuff. If you, if you start from a place where we have the best intentions of everybody in mind, we want to pay it forward. We want to make it rewarding for you to be here. We know that it possibly might be temporary, but we want to set you up for success as you move on to maybe something else. And we're not going to take personal fence if you choose to move on with your career at some point we're not going to act like we own you and that you're our slave and there's got to be a happy medium i did a whole episode called happy medium where i talked about christian smalls the union president for amazon and how they had all these grievances they put all these unfavor unfair labor practices they filed all of them that fell on deaf ears nobody did shit about it There's got to be a happy medium. And I'm glad you brought that up because 
moral capitalism, decent entrepreneurs that have their shit together and are doing it for the right reasons. It's a farce to believe that we cannot make this country better when we come from that starting point. I love it. Yeah. And then uh, I forget, I was watching a news segment the other day and I'm fairly certain it was on, you know, some independent channel because I do my best to try to consume as little uh, corporate media as possible. But they were basically saying that like, one just of the for your mental why, health. <laughs> yeah, just so I don't lose my shit. Um, but one of the people was basically saying that, like, it seems weird that proponents of big government don't do more to elevate and to lift up small business, but they have no very uh, telling. They yeah, they have no qualms that you know Amazon produces just 100%. incredibly terrible culture and 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 terrible work environments. For their employees, That's a Walmart in there too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll give you an example of this that kind of blew my mind. So at one point in time, during the pandemic, Amazon had a COVID infection rate of like close to two percent of their total um, labor force was getting COVID at a certain point in the pandemic, and obviously it wasn't their engineers, it wasn't their their software data analysts and stuff like that it was their factory workers right and i don't know exactly how much of their driver and their factory workers make up of their total company size but it's well over half of the company are just people that work in their factories people that drive their trucks or whatever so let's just say conservatively that even if their covid transmission rate was three percent for their factory workers or three and a half or four percent but even if it was three percent i'll go with a really conservative low number even though it was likely much higher than that um why didn't they ever get shut down? Why were they considered to be essential during the mm-hmm. pandemic? Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that maybe Jeff Bezos gets to attend, you know, meetings where people were at the World Economic Forum kind of rub elbows with each other? Do you think maybe it has something to do with the fact that he has massive amounts of pull? And, and it, it blew my mind as a small business owner when I'm watching this happen, because I'm like, okay, the best, the best estimates that we have say that you have maybe a one or one and a half percent chance of getting COVID in an outdoor dining scenario, because, you know, breathing recycled air and being indoors with people is really the best way that the virus transmits. So why are places getting shut down for outdoor dining when Bezos can have all of his factories operational running at when, when no less than three or three and a half percent. Fantastic point. I wonder why nobody thought about that. And I'm just sitting there the whole time and I'm like, dude, this shit is so rigged. It's so rigged. So anyway, back to the point that I'm trying to make though. So people are like, it's not necessarily intuitive why proponents of big controlling authoritarian government don't really want to do what's best for small businesses, but love to kind of turn a blind eye when big business is shitting the bed. And someone made the point. He's like, well, think about this, right? If you could talk to 25 or 50 or 75 or 100 CEOs that represent a labor force of a half million people, wouldn't that be a much more efficient way to get people on your side, to get funding in, to you know say you're going to represent their interests when you, you may or may not, when all is said and done? Because if you were going to attempt to do that with small business owners, to get representation of 500,000 laborers, you'd have to talk to like 20,000 business owners. 
you know, 30,000 business owners, even, you know, 2,000 business owners. So do you really want to take the time to talk to 2,000, 15,000, 20,000 business owners or 200 or 100 CEOs that represent a populace of the same size? And then like, I, I, and I was watching this dialogue, I was watching this dialogue go back and forth. And I'm like, this is why Democrats don't give two shits about small business owners. This is 100% because we're too diverse of a group of population to corral us and to get us all on board. Cause you know, we have different interests. We're in different industries when they can save massive amounts of time, money and effort by just going and talking to the big dogs. And I, I really think that's why the DNC shifted their narrative away from the little guy kitchen table issues, the economy or whatever, and then just quadruple down on woke identity politics. Yeah. Somehow there is a um, big, I, I call it the big club plan. They're having these meetings for a reason. Like what the fuck do you think you're, they're talking about America? It's ridiculous. Like, how do you not see it? Like, you know what I mean? Like I everything you just said, everything we talked about, everything I've said on my show since episode one, it's just, it's becoming so painfully obvious. And this is why our generation, I, I don't, I just always come back to this. That's why I feel like it gives me personally, me and Sam Winchester talked about this. It gives us purpose to do our shows and to take that responsibility of being in generation, uh, generation X, one foot in the old world, one foot in the new world, because I, that's part of how this alleged big club plan is going to come to fruition is because that part is taken out. They're trying to separate. They're coming. Dude, I think our generation, I think generation X, uh, maybe not the millennials, but generation X and earlier are the targets because if they can get the people that still remain in this world that remember and have seen the progression and can call these motherfuckers out when they see the bullshit, if they can get us out of there, the the ease with which, and this speaks to your point, like you just said, the ease with which they're going to get the young and younger onto their side with this new world order, great reset bullshit. Is that the reason why the vaccines are a thing? So I, I heard this commentator one time call it the boomer doomer. And it made me think, I was like, God, that's such a good play on words because it's like, was that the goal to get the baby boomer generation the fuck off of social security? I know I'm going deep into conspiratorial, but this shit makes you think about this stuff eventually, you know? Yeah, and I think to kind of add on that, right? So scary. You weren't paying attention and you weren't like a sentient thinking person to witness what happened immediately to the labor force of our country after we signed NAFTA. So that was a big one. Mm-hmm. If you weren't paying attention to the ridiculous scare tactics that they were trying to push on us during Y2K, that was another big one. So oh, yeah. I think that was a big experiment that they were running on us. If you didn't watch how much freedom was just usurped and never came back after 9-11, that oh, was a big that's one. that's a big one. Mm-hmm. If you didn't see 
the financial uh, real estate crisis of 2008 and how we bailed out all the banks when we could have used that same money and bailed out the homeowners. And we were just yep. allowing people that had, you know, a blockbuster video card and, you know, and any utility with their name on it to take out a loan of exp ex you know, exponentially higher than that they can <laughs> afford only to fuck them when the variable rate on the interest changed. You didn't witness, if you weren't an adult, you didn't witness that happening in 2008. Okay. And then if you didn't, if you didn't witness and look at what happened in the early mo moments of the Tea Party, because unfortunately the Tea Party got commandeered by right-wing nut jobs really fast, but the really early, quick. early, early movement of the Tea Party, there was some really good stuff happening there. As sure. was, there was really good stuff happening in the early, early moments of Occupy. So I don't mm -hmm. think if you were, and I'm not necessarily mm -hmm. saying you have to be an adult during all of that time, but if you weren't paying attention and seeing the externalities that the were- progression. Yeah, mm -hmm. the progression that were that were set up by those six major events, and then man, COVID just being the next you know game changer. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, and so that's and that's why it's tough. That's why I think people of our age range are kind of in a unique position to be incredibly skeptical and to be the gatekeepers of saying, "Hey, by the way, I smell bullshit." Because um, I think a lot of younger people can smell bullshit too. They just I don't necessarily I do know. I, they can smell bullshit for sure, but I just, they weren't alive to see NAFTA to Y2K to 9-11 to the financial crisis of 2008 to Occupy to Tea Party. They, they didn't see that full progression. And I feel like if you didn't kind of see that full progression, it's hard to be able to see like where the ship is being steered behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I, I love this because I think this is why the podcast movement is exploding in the way that it is because people are just thirsty for something new. They're, they're thirsty for different perspectives. They want to find their niche. They want to find their clan, their group of people. Uh, I don't know if it's going to contribute to uh, tribalism. I don't think it's going to on a mass scale because there's so much diverse, uh, diffuse and diverse viewpoints. Um, I've been consuming a lot of podcasts lately just to kind of see what's out there and alternative media, man, it's really the wave of the future. And if people can make money off of it, you know, more power to them and the world needs it. And I hope that's, that's the contribution of our generation, maybe to the next. I hope they start listening to podcasts and finding a way to get the education, not the indoctrination that they received in their public schools. Yeah. And honestly, like I got to take this opportunity to tip my hat to someone that just did something incredibly courageous recently. So it's not a fully independent um, media channel, although I do appreciate most of the content they put out. But one of my favorite journalists recently stepped down from a show called Rising on the Hill. Her name is Kim <laughs> Iverson. And uh, this show had been trying to get an interview with Dr. Fauci forever. And they finally got Fauci to agree to do this show and everything else. And then I don't know if it was, you know, influence from Fauci's handlers that made this happen, or if it was people from the, the news network that didn't really want to step in poop. Uh, but they basically <laughs> set up the interview. It was agreed that Kim Iverson would not be part of the interview. <laughs> and she had been very critical of Fauci's handling of the pandemic, not, you know, being overly conspiratorial, but she's like, Hey, there's leaked emails. We were absolutely funding 
you know, these research institutes in China through various companies affiliated with the WHO, mm-hmm. there's absolutely people that came forward early on saying, hey, this virus, there's various points in the sequencing of this virus that don't look like something that happened in nature. Mm-hmm. And those people were either A, immediately silenced or B, and I think Fauci had an email to one guy who came forward and said, hey, this virus looks like it could have been mutated for all these reasons. And Fauci said, hey, let's be careful to talk about that because the last thing we want people to do is to get skeptical about the plan to get everyone immunized and everything else. And then later, you know, that guy got placated with with money through the WHO to fund some other, uh, you know, research that he wanted to do. So he kind of shut his mouth in silence. So anyway, Kim Iverson's been incredibly just on following the story. And she's like, hey, I, he, he has some information that I would like to get to. And I'd like to be able to ask him some questions. And she was never given that opportunity. So she was like, you know what? I don't need this job. I'm out. Peace. And she left her job. Love it. And I'm like, man, set the example, man, if we had more journalists like Kim Iverson, I don't know. The likelihood that she'll ever hear this is probably very small, but man, I have so much respect for that woman for stepping up. And then before she was, someone can clip it. Someone can clip it and send it to her. Easy. She can get, she can hear this. But, uh, but 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 I don't know if you ever follow that sh- that show or if you follow the show that they're on now. But there's two other journalists that I really enjoy, uh, uh, Sagar and Crystal from Breaking Points. They used to be oh, on. Oh yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah they're great, outstanding, yep. great great source of honest journalism. Um, Crystal is pretty progressive, left leaning. She says a lot of things that I don't really agree with, but I can always follow her line of logic. And I'm like, mm-hmm. those are good points. Here's where I disagree with you, but I don't think you're a bad actor. Thank you for bringing all that up. I, sl- I have a slightly different perspective. Um, but they Disagreeing were both on- peacefully. I love it. But they were both on Rising for a really long time. And they finally came to the conclusion that like, if they want to do their show the way they want to do it, they have to be in a, in a format that takes absolutely no corporate sponsorship. And that's why they left Rising and they started um breaking points but if anyone's listening to this podcast breaking points i think you can find it on youtube and various other streaming channels i feel like it's one of the best sources of honest journalism that we have access to right now and i feel like they perpetually give multiple perspectives on similar issues and they're clearly not trying to push a narrative which is really 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 refreshing nice i'm gonna check that out because it's rare. And I say that on my show all the time. I'm like, you got to get away from mainstream media. You got to seek out good alternative media and you got to go find your thing. You got to find what it is you're looking for. And if you really are a truth seeker and you really want objective reporting and you, you don't want the sensationalism, and you don't want the spin and the garbage, there are people out there that are providing that. You just got to go find it. And it's and it goes right back to, you know, if you want that freedom, with freedom comes responsibility. You got to take the responsibility. You want your life to be better. You got to make it better. You want to find good journalism and good media. You got to go seek it out. And that's the way the future is going to be. You want food? You're going to go have to seek out food. <laughs> you want shelter? You're probably at some point going to have to go seek that out too. If things keep going the way that they're going. So I really hope this younger generation is listening to podcasts. And I really, really hope that they are heeding the warnings because the future, if can, it continues on the current trajectory, if I can speak, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. The future is not looking bright. And Drew, the last time we talked, you know, I was, I got, you know, into the whole um, 
here's the left leaning propaganda model, here's the right leaning propaganda model. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one definitive way to know that you're absolutely being taken advantage of when you consume any media. And this doesn't necessarily have to be a multinational corporate owned media phenomenon. But if you guys have never heard of a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Haidt, I would strongly, strongly recommend you check this dude out. He's one of the foremost authorities in the world on moral and political psychology. He's gotten together with Greg Lukianoff, I believe is his name, and they've wrote some amazing books, one being um, The, the Coddling of, of the, the American yep. Coddling of the American Mind. Yep. So Jonathan Haidt basically postulates that there are three games that humans are really good at playing, and they're of different orders of magnitude. And he says the highest order of magnitude game that humans play is the honest, bona fide search for truth. And he says, that's the hardest game to play. That's the game that the fewest amount of people play because when you're in the honest pursuit of truth, you can get your bedrock and your world shaken up real fast. And it takes a special kind of person to be able to acknowledge when you're wrong, when you had bad information, how to rethink your arguments, how to rethink your ideas. And a lot of people, like they don't want to get their bedrock and their foundation shook that hard. So that's the highest game. The medium level game that we're really good at playing is the rally around something that's sacred. So we all find this thing that we agree as a collective group that is a sacred thing and we rally around that. And a lot of people that go to church do that. Some people that are really into, I don't know, like, you know, when you and I sit here and we talk about how much we respect Thomas Sowell, you know, we're doing that in service of something that is true ideally, but we're also rallying around someone that we think is prolific because like, like you said, the man wrote 45 books and he's 92 and he's still just unbelievably sharp and just amazing on so many different levels. So that's an example of us rallying around some, something that's sacred. Here's the lowest order of game that humans play. And anytime a media outlet is framing a scenario like this, you know you're getting played. It's the us versus them game. Mm -hmm. Find the us Find someone that you can point a finger at that is responsible for all of your problems in life. And they're the one holding you back. And they're the one doing this. We are the good people. They're the bad people. Identify the us and go after the them. Us, them. And I rarely networks that are not curating an us and a them. And here's why you need to be with us. And here's why they are the bad guys. And I'm sorry, but like, if you are watching something that's framing in us versus them kind of scenario, the likelihood that you're getting played is really, really, really high. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of the divide and conquer agenda. That's what the whole, you know, keep them fighting, you know, goes back to Carlin too. keep them fighting with each other so that we can continue going to the bank. That's right. It's a big <laughs> fucking club. And by the way, you're not in it. You're not in it. Um. Brother, I think I got to wrap it yeah, tonight no for I this we one. Planning, I know we weren't planning on having a, a long conversation, but I think we just probably got another hour plus of dialogue going. So yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, man, we're going to, we got another hour done and uh, I'll put it into something else. Obviously I'll uh, run it by you before we do it. Yeah. But, I don't know. Uh, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can get some conversations going with other people and like cut and paste some things together around a central topic. Cause we were kind of spitballing and all over the place today. Yeah, we kept it. We kept it on though. We we did a good job. Um, 
I was actually thinking that I think it'd be cool to get a group conversation going with uh, people that were interested in that had some unique perspective, maybe some old friends, some old punk rockers. Well, we'll see what we can put together. I like it. See if we can get a couple more people and uh, you know, Sundays are usually good for me, but I can be flexible with notice. So let's get something else in the books, man. All right, people hope you enjoyed that conversation. (laughs) You know what? Go learn a trade. My fellow Americans, you want to make six figures right now? <laughs> Don't go to a four-year university. Go learn to trade. You'll be glad you did. You'll fa- your, your family will be glad that you did. And go read Jonathan Haidt's books. The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, oh, I forget the one where why are we, why are Americans or why are good people separated by politics and religion and uh he's got so many good books uh, i'm there the titles are escaping me at the moment but um the righteous mind i think is another one that uh it was really good anyway uh one more commercial guys and then when we come back it will be once again on the politics and punk rock podcast time to play some punk rock. All right, people. Welcome back to the show. And uh, just wanted to clear one thing up in the interview there. Uh, Adam said that I didn't go to San Diego State with us. And what he meant by that was when me and Adam were in our band 12 Under together, I was still in the military, uh, but I was hanging out with all the guys at the Teak House fraternity house at San Diego State, where Adam and my our guitar player, Sean, and a bunch of our other friends uh, were all in the fraternity at the time. So I got a little taste of the college life before I actually went to San Diego State eight years later. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was touring around and... You know, took semesters of community college off and took two courses at a time for semesters. And, you know, I went to community college for like four years before I transferred to San Diego State to do my last final two years of college so that I could graduate with a bachelor's of arts degree in sociology. (laughs) (laughs) What a dipshit. Today. It's time, once again, to play some punk rock, making their return to the politics and punk rock podcast with their brand new single, Finum Ludum, Here's Zero Cost.
show people. Thank you for listening. Support the website, politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com. Buy a t-shirt, donate to the show, read the show notes. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. We'll see you next time. This has been episode 135 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. Entitled, Punk Anarchy and the State of the World, Part 2, with Adam the First Man. We'll see you next time.